You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. everybody this is danny anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the sectarian review podcast um we're approaching halloween and i had always have my feelers out for stuff that's appropriate for that time of season for the show and uh, i think i came across something really cool today and i'm very happy to uh, to share that with you i just wanted to kind of before we begin offer out again if you have any questions or contact or any, anything you want to say about the show don't uh, be afraid to contact me we have a facebook page we have a twitter feed um you can find me on twitter myself at, at danny p Anderson, and uh, we have an email address, I guess, uh, called uh, what is it? What is my email? Uh, sectarianreview at gmail.com. And so, if you want to send me an email, I love to con- I love to converse with listeners in that way. So, but today, let me just roll right into the show. I am talking with Pastor Andy Whitaker Smith, and, and he has this book that he's written called Universal Monsters. And I think I want to talk about the title because I think there's a a really nice uh, uh, dual meaning in that title there. And so, um, but the book is also tied to a Bible study that he's doing um, week by. By week uh, leading in the weeks leading up to Halloween. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about this book with uh, Andy. That's a, a nice little collection of oh, theological riffs on the, the major uh, universal monsters. And it's a really fun read. I really enjoyed reading it and I can't wait to talk to him about it. Andy, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Daniel. And thank you so much for having me on today. Oh my gosh. It's uh, my pleasure. It's such a... Uh, for someone growing up in kind of like, I grew up in a Wesleyan tradition too, Nazarene. And, uh, and so for someone growing up in my shoes, I always felt like the only person who enjoyed monsters and that sort of thing. And so when I find somebody else, uh, who's sort of got a similar background to me that has similar thoughts, uh, I'm all about that. So I'm very, very grateful for you joining us. Um, Andy, why don't you tell us a little about yourself, where you work and, uh, and maybe the genesis of this idea. Yeah, I serve as an associate pastor at First United Methodist Church in Lakeland, Florida. Um, it's it's a very historic church, uh, over a hundred years old, and um, it is is very established in the area. So a lot of rich heritage, um, a lot of tradition, and um, one of the great things I have always loved about being a pastor is you never do the same thing every day. Um, that, you know, there's those traditional things. I mean, you, you have to come up with a sermon every week and um, some administrative tasks. But one of the things I love about being a pastor is that um, <laughs> right or wrong, you kind of make it up as you go a, a lot of times um, because you do, you know, your your congregation uh, hopefully is very diverse. And so they have things going on in their individual lives. But in the midst of all that, um, I, I think personally, for me anyway, this shouldn't this should not be a job. I mean, I, I do see it as a ministry, which means that that I get to do the things that I love as much as the stuff that, you know, you have to take care of on a daily basis. And so in the midst of that, I've, I've found time um, to be able to work on, on different projects and this, this being one of them. Years ago, I thought about doing this as a Halloween sermon series. And um, it, it, 
I never found a congregation that was really saying, oh, yeah, I preach about the Wolfman. That would be awesome. Um, so so I have a colleague who has been a pretty successful self-published writer through Amazon and Kindle. And, and as I process, I thought, OK, well, then the hardest thing to do is to actually just write the book. Um, so I did. I just I, I gave myself a, every day to do it. And I did it on a subject that I love, you know, very much like you, I was that kid as well. And I found that the more I wrote about it, you know, it wasn't just about the characters, but it was about what it is that they represent, which is why I titled it Universal Monsters. I think the great thing about that phrase is it's not just from the production company, but we see how these characters represent universal traits in ourselves um, as much as universal realities. And so I think that's, that's the power of not only these characters, but also characters of fiction, you know, period, they represent the reality that we all deal with and, and are a part of. And I think with it being monster characters to see how do we participate in these realities and how do we see these monsters in ourselves? And that's the important question, I think. And you're, you're totally right. I, um, um, I have to say, I, I, when I was reading this, I found myself, it's very, it's kind of, digressive in good ways. I don't mean that in a, as a bad way. It, you sort of start talking about the invisible man or the creature from the black, black lagoon. And then there's all these sort of avenues that come out of those discussions. Right. And that's exactly how I like to, when I teach film here at where I work at Mount Aloysius college in Pennsylvania, um, I, I really enjoy like using any kind of work of art movies in, in, included as a kind of jumping off point to talk about, all of the things that are connected to this work of art, right? And so um, you end up having really interesting conversations about complementarianism uh, when it, in terms of Bride of Frankenstein and that kind of thing. And it's just really, really interesting uh, to follow those little trails that you go down uh, in these kind of almost thought experiments about each movie. And I, and I really, really enjoyed reading the book. It was a lot of fun to read this week. And, uh, and I highly recommend anybody getting it. It is um, easily available on Amazon and, uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the, uh, to the Amazon page uh, where you can find this. And then um, I'll also put a link to the Bible study um, that's associated with this. This is, that's a part of this, right? So um, you're going to go chapter by chapter uh, on via a zoom call. Yes, yeah, so it'll be on Zoom. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll do a chapter each week or a character each week. So I would, I would even invite folks. I mean, if you haven't read the book, you certainly don't need to. If you're a fan of these characters, um, I, I would even say it's not even really a Bible study. I mean, we'll, we'll allude to scripture, but really it's more of just a conversation of, I think, what we're doing right now. So even if you're not necessarily like, don't don't let the word church scare you off. Um, th this is really a communal conversation and that's why I wanted to do it through zoom. So even if you love these characters and, and Daniel, I think you hit on something, which is, you know, if, if you love something enough, you start to think about those deeper implications. You know, I think that's why these movies are so timeless is because it's not just because it's a great movie, but the more you watch it, the more you recognize things you didn't see before. And think, oh, I didn't think about that. And, th and that's basically what I did as I wrote the book. I mean, I didn't intend it to be as, as thick as it is. But as I was writing about the Invisible Man, for instance, um, yeah, so these kind of side thoughts came out of it. Like, I, I'm not really a big fan of The Mummy. Um, 
And I forced myself to do that one first because I think if I if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. But it did it did make me think more about, you know, how do we examine death in our society and how do we try to avoid it or conquer it? And so even though I wasn't really crazy about the character, it did open my mind and perspective to think, you know, how does the mummy represent this? It was a piece of cake. Yeah, there's a lot of um, like corollaries I think that we can find in horror films. They're so elemental as a as a genre, right? And so, and honestly, I think that you have this moment where horror films are respectable in broader cinema in a way that they haven't been maybe in in quite a while. There's, I mean, event movies by Jordan Peele are like saying something about our society. In the new movie Antebellum that just came out, that I haven't seen yet, but um, um, there, there's a way in which horror films are kind of uniquely situated to help us kind of process uh, the reality of our um, society and, and our, of our social connections. And, and that's not a new phenomenon with just new horror films. It's always been that way with horror films. That's why I'm such a fan of the genre myself. And so I have to say, I'm very jealous of you on some level for doing this. I've always wanted to do something like this uh, in my local congregations as well. Um, and, uh, and maybe uh, we could talk about ways for uh, other churches to sort of buy the book and, and go th- do their own versions of this. But it's one of the benefits if you want to, I, I to put a, a positive spin on COVID, but because I, I assume this would have taken place in your local congregation, right? Um, if not for the COVID moment, and um, because of that, it's now available to lots more people, right? And so that that is a you know a possibly positive outcome of this. So. Um, go yeah, ahead. absolutely. I think um, one of the things I've thought about as far as how do we do ministry in the future is you know when you consider. Okay, we have to do Zoom now because that's the only way we can meet. I I found myself asking, you know, why didn't I do this last year? I mean, it's not as though Zoom came out of COVID or Google Hangouts or whatever. But, yeah, I think it it's it's helped or maybe even forced us to think about, um, you know, we we could have been doing this a lot, lot longer ago. Um, But for, you know. Right, right or wrong, we have the, we have the ability to, to do it now. And uh, hopefully this does open up windows for, you know, people like you and I, again, as we were kids thinking, you know, well, nobody loves monsters as much as I do. And then we find out, oh, my gosh, yes, they do. They're just, you know, 500 miles away. Um, so, yeah, hopefully this if anything good comes out of this experience, hopefully it helps us to see that maybe we're not as alone or isolated in our in our passions. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, great. Well put. And I, I totally agree. And I have to say the same thing goes with my teaching. I find myself incorporating a lot of things that I had to do last semester um, because of Zoom or because of COVID and, and, and Zoom. I almost equate Zoom and COVID now. Uh, but uh, because of all that, I have to uh, uh, I had to adjust. And I actually, I found many of those things to be effective in the physical classroom now that we're back this semester. And so I do think that there are some ways in which we might improve ourselves in a lot of ways um, because of this because of having having to adjust to this moment. And so um, I want to get into some of the the monsters. And I know this, I don't want to keep you all day here to talk about this. I know you're busy. Um, oh, I could talk about this all day. <laughs> but I want to, uh, I want to kind of hit, I guess, uh, a little bit on each of the monsters that you cover then. Um, and I, in my audience, if you listen to me at any length, you know, I have this ridiculous fascination with werewolves. And uh, so I definitely want to focus on the Wolfman. A couple of years ago, the, net, the network every year does this crossover series 
parties in which we all kind of go on each other's shows and talk about a particular horror theme for Halloween. And uh, uh, like last year, I think it was Stephen King novels. This year, it's going to be M. Night Shyamalan movies. Um, and a couple of years ago, it was um, Universal Monsters. And I covered the Wolfman uh, on here. So uh, if you go back a couple of years ago, you can hear my episode on the on the Wolfman. But um, uh, before we get to that, you, you begin with The Invisible Man. And I think that that's an interesting one. I mean, it's not chronological, right? You, you've ordered these in, in different ways. And so um, The Invisible Man, I think... You write it offers us the chance to talk about a lot of cultural phenomenon uh, that are that are useful in exploring the way we are and the way we deal with one another, particularly about the idea of isolation and the 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 power I guess of invisibility has uh, an isolating impact that is both empowering and kind of. Uh, putrefying <laughs> if you want to want to, to look at uh, the, the character in that case would uh, you want to talk a little bit about what you say about the invisible man yeah sure so I, I begin the chapter um, just commenting on how most of us is, as kids at some point you know we we ask the question you know what superpower would you have and and I think for the majority we would either say you know being able to fly or be invisible and you know how cool it would be to walk around no one could see you you know you could play jokes on folks uh, you could you know listen in on conversations you there there's so much you would be able to get away with and i think it's interesting that we usually think about that power as you know here's all the things i could get away with um but yeah i think the other part of that is the isolation um i remember i think it was an episode of x files you know, someone is able to make himself invisible and he's walking in the street and he's so he's so fascinated by the fact that he accomplished it, that he doesn't notice that an ice cream truck or something is coming down the road and hits him. And that for me, that was the first time I thought, oh, yeah, maybe it wouldn't be so great to be invisible because you would really have to pay attention, you know, to, to everything. Um, but, yeah, I think that is the part of the isolation. So, you know, this guy, Griffin, wants to become invisible and he and he accomplishes it. But like like all good sci-fi movies um he doesn't he, he doesn't consider the consequences um one of them being isolation and so i think that's part of what drives him insane i mean obviously it's the potion itself but i think there's there's a personal component to that as well what happens if you were to become invisible and maybe as we consider this in the context of covid when so many of us do feel invisible or isolated or cut off or disconnected and when he's trying to cure himself in that little inn, you know, Claude Rain says over and over, there, there's got to be a way back. And, and I don't think he's just talking about physically. Mm. Um, we, we see him digress more and more um, as he remains invisible. And, you know, he's talking about world domination and all of this stuff. But it, it's like he, he's becoming invisible, not just physically, but also in his humanity. Um, and he's becoming more and more disconnected. So, yeah, I think the, the thing, one of the things I love about these characters in these films, like you were saying, horror is definitely speaking to our time right now. And it was speaking to their time as well in the 30s, 40s and 50s. But the beauty of these films, like all great stories, is you see how it still connects with our context today. Um, and so it's almost as though these films are very prophetic in the sense of, you know, we, we can advance as much as we want as humanity, but when it comes right down to it, we still have to deal with these situations. Yes. And, um, I have to say, as I was reading this section, it makes me think I, I not to 
go back to teaching all the time, but uh, the idea of like invisibility is I think a little bit harmful to what we're trying to accomplish in a classroom. And I have a particular class this semester and because of the way that we're trying to do in-person classes to keep ourselves safe. And we've actually been really successful on campus. We've been one of the campuses that hasn't had really an outbreak um, because I think the students have been really good about masking and, and all the things that we're asking them to do. But also we have some systems in place, including um, I teach this introduction to writing class. We call it rhetoric one here. And, um, I, that class is very conversational when it works well, right? And so I, we get conversations going and it is not working at all um, in this environment because we're in this giant room where they're spread apart and everybody's wearing masks, right? And so in a sense, they are kind of invisible to each other, right? And it's easy for them to not contribute, right? And so they feel, I think, disconnected from their environment. And so I've tried to find ways to use like a shared Google doc and I give them little writing exercises and then I illustrate what they're writing. So they're kind of embodying themselves in different ways, I suppose, in the class. And it, it actually worked really well the other day. I was like, so happy. It was one of my great teaching moments of the year. Um, but, uh, but it was, that was what I was trying to overcome is the idea, the, the poisonous effect of isolation. And that is, I mean, for all the power that invisibility gives us, um, that idea of it also, separates us from community right um and that is part of what i think drives him mad i mean the chemicals i mean the the movie puts it on the the chemicals themselves right but but it is also i think there's something more kind of like philosophical there about the need for human beings to exist in community with one another uh and and i think that that's um uh something that goes wrong for him right from the get-go. And in, in later kind of adaptations of this theme, I mean, they actually, I think you call him hollow at one point, and there was the movie The Hollow Man, right? And so it isn't, right. um, yeah. and I think that that's kind of like where they're going. Uh, incidentally, have you seen the the new Invisible Man uh, with Elizabeth Moss? I, I haven't. I'm not. I, I really want to, but I, I thought the trailer was really interesting in the, the you know, the obvious themes um, you know, abuse and fear, um, manipulation and, and the power that's not just in the visibility, but the power of control. Yeah. And, and it's the way power is basically invisible to us. Right. And I think it's a really in insightful, it's a really good movie. I wouldn't call it a horror movie, frankly. Um, it's, it's sci-fi at best. Um, but it's, it's really just sort of a, a trauma, uh, narrative and, and, and it's, you're following this woman who's been sort of like, um, brutalized. And then there's the whole gaslighting thing that goes along with it. And, and, and his power is that, um, the power of patriarchy is invisible to society basically. And, and it allows mm -hmm. him to do these terrible things. And he also happens to be this sort of like tech billionaire or something. And so he also has that kind of privilege in society. But, um, but yeah, and I think that while the, movie has nothing to do with the title, <laughs> but, uh, uh, with the original movie, um, I think it is picking up on an important theme of the uh, original movie and just recontextualizing it for our modern time. Um, so I, I highly recommend, uh, the invisible man. I think it's really great. You also, um, one of the digressions that you take, uh, that I think is really interesting in this book is that you kind of connect it to Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. You sort of accidentally read it <laughs> because you thought it was something else when you're, and, and you, why don't you talk a little bit about how you connect this to ideas of race? Yeah. So when I was a kid, um, I think in seventh or eighth grade, we had to do an essay and they gave us a list of books and, um, 
<laughs> middle school and high school English really just whatever I had to read. I just, I hate it because I had to read it. I, you know, I mean, I, I, I love to read, but, but only if it's stuff that I like to read. I, I'm an English teacher. I, I know, I know what the other side of that feels like. <laughs> I, I'm sure you do. Yeah. So, uh, when we get, so we, you know, we got a list of books and, and I scrolled down. I was like, Oh, invisible man. Cool. I'll grab that. I didn't, I didn't even look at the, the author. And so as I'm reading it, I'm like, um, this isn't like the movie. And so as so as I read that, you know, for for what it is um, talking about what it's like to live in in a, a racist country, um, I, I just I threw it away. I was like, I, I'm not interested in this at all. So what I ended up doing was just barfing out this horrible report that was half about here's what I thought it was. And here's what I like about HG Wells in the movie. And then the second half was just this gibberish of, you know, the few pages that I read. Um, and, and I say this with a lot of shame because I think it represents why Ralph Ellison wrote the book in the first place. I mean, I, I contribute to that. So if you've not read the book, um, it, it's talking about how invisibility is a very real curse for a lot of people, um, particularly people of color. Because um, so I so I allude that into the power of privilege, which means that I'm I'm allowed to continue that mode of invisibility because it doesn't impact me as a white person. And I think, again, going back into themes of isolation, I mean, that's that's the whole point. One of the one of the huge points that Ellison calls the book Invisible Man, and he even writes about that in the prologue that I'm not invisible because I took a chemical. I was born into invisibility um, for which there's no cure unless people change. So as I thought about that, then, I mean, that was a huge door for me to, to talk about the, the realities of white privilege and how our culture and society continues that idea of invisibility. Um, which again, I haven't seen the the new Invisible Man movie, but I think in terms of you know what happens when we do not believe people, particularly women, um, but also people of color, saying you know well racism's not a thing anymore. It was done in the '60s. Uh, that, that's just not true. Um, it may seem true for some of us who are able to view it that way, but it's through a lens of invisibility, and because of that, we continue to to put that invisibility on, on so many people. Um, you know, we just learned, uh, 48 hours ago that the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor, um, are not going to be held for their crime. That's a curse of invisibility that we are refusing to look at. And so because of that, it is an invisibility that one does not, inject into themselves like Griffin does, it's just forced upon them. I mean, we, we are injecting invisibility onto other people, um, which again is unfortunately a universal trait of our society. That's, you know, it, it predates our context. It predates the context of this film. I mean, it's been going on for hundreds of years. So, um, and, and I just had to realize that as the author, um, I could not write about that without naming how I personally have contributed to that. And yeah, and I found that really powerful. And you actually taught you connected at some point to this the claim of colorblindness and and how that just sort of also perpetuates um, these powers, right? Um, these these this 
this power system that makes other people invisible. And what, in particularly, I want to kind of aim this criticism at, at churches that sort of don't want to deal with protests and that sort of thing. They, they think it's it's wrong to protest. or um, And then they try to label all protests as a negative thing because they associate it with certain violent images, right? Um, but, but even in more subtle ways, they don't want to see what the, what the result of these power strictures are in a society. And so uh, you see a lot of this, um, there's in the last month or so been this incredible uptick in discourse about critical race theory in I think this has to do with like the Southern Baptists. I think there's something going on over there. It's a world that I'm somewhat connected to, but not much. And so I just sort of have these uh, weird sense that it's, it has something to do with some controversies among the Southern Baptists. Um, and and so there's this backlash against critical race theory um, uh, among some of these theological groups as this, this is going to be something that destroys the church, right? But I mean, and certainly I think that there are ways in which critical race theory can be used poorly. Um, like the re- a recent episode of the Christian Humanist podcast, they start talking about the way theory in general can be used for better and worse in, in better and worse ways. And so I think critical race theory can also be used in bad ways, but um, in, in kind of naive ways, let me just say. But, um, but I also think it's important to have these conversations. And what it seems to me that people are just, they just don't want to have the conversations. They want to maintain Griffin's invisibility um, so that they can maintain the power that makes them comfortable. And, and maybe that's a cruel, maybe it's a, I know it's a broad brush that I'm painting with there, but I, I kind of stand by that reading of, of what's going on in a lot of churches right now. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think, I mean, certainly in my experience as a pastor and, and even as a layperson, um, I can't remember what chapter, I don't know if it was Invisible Man, but I, I recollect in a time when I was a layperson attending a church and we had um, one of my favorite pastors ever. Um, and I think about her a lot when I know that I'm going to preach on something like this, but she she is and at that time was very passionate about social justice And I was sitting, I remember it so vividly, I was sitting next to this person, a friend of mine. And as this pastor goes up to preach, you know, she, she preached about, uh, it may have been poverty, but anyway, at the end of the service, this friend I was sitting by said something to the effect of, you know, oh, I hate when she preaches because it's always so depressing. I don't come to church to be depressed. And I was just like, um... Okay, I, I don't know that I would say the word depressed, but I, I mean, I, I think that speaks to what you're saying, Daniel, is that I think for a lot of folks, um, the, the, the argument that I typically hear when, when we preach politics, I mean, that's usually how it's worded, you know, you shouldn't preach politics, um, but especially lately what I've heard in churches is that the, the churches to talk about Jesus um, And so I'm just kind of dumbfounded. It was like, well, but Jesus talked about this stuff. Like that was the whole point of his ministry. So, but I think what people are referring to is, um, and this is where I think we failed in pastoral leadership, is that for so many decades, we didn't really talk about how our faith is to play into our public life in terms of how do we help each other. Um, I think we, one of the consequences that we've, experienced in making faith very personal or I guess very individual and not as communal is that because this doesn't affect me, this should not affect my faith. And so when you stand up and you talk about stuff that I decide I have decided does not impact me personally, I'm not sure why I have to hear about it in church because 
you know, this is the one place I can come where I can get away from all of that stuff. So like you said, this is where I can come and all of that stuff can remain invisible because I want to hear about heaven. And I talk about that in some of the other, other chapters, but I think, yeah, it, it, it gets too real. So if part of your reason to come to church is to avoid the quote real stuff, um, it is very uncomfortable, but I think that's, that's a big proclamation on what we consider church to be in this day and age. Yeah. And, and I feel like for so long, particularly evangelical um, denominations um, or in the sort of, in particularly, I guess with the rise of the mega church kind of um, style of, of worship. Um, I think that we have conceived of church as this sort of like euphoric um, escape from reality where we can sort of be in touch with the divine and, and it has this therapeutic sort of um role to play in our lives and when someone tries to intrude on that and i harsh your mellow i guess uh by by bringing up the the struggles of other people which is part of i mean a big part maybe the biggest part of what we're supposed to do as christians um i think there's been a just a reaction and i think a lot of that has to do with the way we've designed the worship experience um over the last few decades um so I'm, there's lots of sociologists and in, in christianity that probably said much more smarter things about that than I can say, but um, I want to move on a little bit to Creature of the Black Lagoon because uh, that's what I'm glad you wrote about because I feel like he gets left out. <laughs> the Gill Man gets left out a lot of these conversations, and you take I mean some real uh, one I mean a couple of like places I expected you to go with environmentalism, but then you start talking about assimilation, um, which was an interesting. Um, Thing, place I hadn't thought of, but it worked really well. And on this topic, I just want to say, uh, my wife is a very um, passionate advocate for the environment in, in churches, and, and she actually has a podcast on this network. For those of you who aren't subscribing to Restoration, a creation care podcast uh, by Kim Anderson, uh, I, I encourage you to do that. But I think she would like this chapter because you you start talking about basically the way in which we've conceived of the, the Christians, that Christians have conceived of their role in this kind of dominionist uh, uh, way of, of, of dominating in nature rather than caring for nature. Right. And the gill man is a way to explore that kind of, um, that kind of, uh, tension. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, creature from the black lagoon? Yeah. So, um, the, the thing that always came to my mind about the first movie was he gets invaded. Um, he's also not, technically a, a monster in the sense that, you know, Dracula is, um, he, he's an animal. So, uh, you know, in some ways you, you can make an argument that, that what he does is, you know, defending his, his territory. There is a human aspect, I think, to him that you see, particularly with his relationship to, to Kay Adams. Um, but yeah, I think the other part of that is, you know, because the Gill Man comes in the 50s, monster movies kind of take a different turn. So instead of having a mad scientist, the scientists are the heroes and they're not nerdy scientists. The, you know, this is like Captain America is going into the Everglades kind of thing. And so you automatically have respect for these scientists who are, of course, also all males. Um, and so while they're busy trying to figure out how to conquer this new territory, um, you know, Kay Adams has this very personal relationship, even though she doesn't even realize it. So the more I thought about it, um, going back to assimilation, 
if you if you look at the creature trilogy, it really is kind of the evolution of slave culture. So you have these scientists come in in the first movie, and um, they so they infiltrate the creature's habitat, uh, his way of life, and they try to destroy him. In the second movie, they end up capturing him and bringing him back to their home and putting him on display for everybody else. In the third one, they capture him and it's from the story, they're trying to save his life. But the obvious subtext is, okay, in order to save the creature's life, we have to make him more human. So they take away his ability to breathe underwater. They try to make him look more human. Um, They put clothes on him, which I mean, you, you can't, I mean, that's not even subtext anymore. But as I, as I thought of it, and again, I don't know that, that the filmmakers ne- necessarily intended it to be that way, but it is a very monstrous form of sl- seeing how the slave culture works. You invade first, then you capture, you bring back, um, and then you assimilate, you make them like us. Um, so, yeah, I think the creature is is a great example of what happens when not only are we the monsters, but we are the invaders um yeah no i agree and i think that um as someone my dissertation was on jewish american fiction and and i i'm actually this this semester teaching a class on the jewish novel so assimilation is like a major um kind of subtext is a major theme in that body of work and so we've actually been talking about it a lot in class and this story actually reminds me particularly the creature walks among us is that the name of that third movie um the uh there's a great kafka short story um called report to an academy and it's basically about this ape who was captured and in order to kind of have a more comfortable cage he starts imitating the people in the boat and they're amused by him and so then they give him a little comfortable cage so that he can do more tricks for them and that he extends that activity all the way to learning to read and to speak and he becomes this eloquent speaker on the vaudeville circuit right and and at no point does he find this to be actually heroic right he doesn't talk about this as him achieving anything towards freedom it's just a bigger cage that i could be comfortable in he's very kind of spiteful about the way he has been assimilated into human culture right and and so the, to me i i give them that story at the beginning of the semester because it establishes one of the um uh, the paradoxes that Jewish fiction is really interested in is this idea of assimilation, which yes, you're achieving something in a culture, but with a major cost, right? Um, you're, mm-hmm. you're giving up something um, essential perhaps about yourself. And, uh, and that's one of the tensions that you see that drives a lot of this fiction. And, and, I would have never put it into, into the into the Gilman uh, until reading this, and so I really, really did appreciate that. Um, and and you do talk about like the environmental aspect of this too. So obviously, there's sort of an exploitation of resources uh, sub theme there, right? But when Kay Adams is swimming, there is this kind of moment where there is a way for human beings to kind of peacefully coexist with nature, right? There, that there is mm-hmm. a kind of beautiful dance underwater that they do together in that um in that film right and i think that that's a really um a really cool way to think about an alternative way of of being in nature and not exploiting nature of of sort of caring for nature and 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 i think you want to make the point in this chapter that as christians um we're not called to you know squeeze every last dime out of nature uh, for our profit we are called to care for nature right to caretake to shepherd it 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think it's it's helpful to know the context of the book of Genesis. That um, I mean, most scholars agree that it was written during the time of the Babylonian exile. So if you think about a whole race of people, again, who have been invaded, who have been captured, been made to assimilate to this new empire with all of their culture and traditions and gods to worship, part of their response and rebellion is to um, recollect their their own stories and to say, well, this is this is who we worship and this is how the, this is how our God, you know, created existence. Um, but also with that is in the creation of humanity, God says to them to have dominion, but, but not domination. And, and this is when we, I think one of the times we really need to consider the ancient Hebrew language. Um, and I think the word is radah, which, which means to, to be able to work with creation. So again, we have to remember that at, at this time, agriculture, which is the prime economy and the way that you sustain yourself. I mean, the way you feed your family is you have to plant a garden and it has to work. Um, and it's really, really hard work. So again, they encapsulate that as a part of their creation story saying, you know, God gives them the land to be able to work with, but it's not, it's not to exploit. It's not having domination. It's being able to work with it, to understand how the, how the land works and the best way to bear that fruit that you need to survive. But I think we've lost that in our in our Western American Christian context to say that, you know, well, this this is our gift and we can play with it however we want. Um, I don't know of any parent who has given their child a toy. And if the child says, well, I'm going to play with it this way and it breaks, the parent's automatic response is, well, that's not why I gave it to you. Um, And, you know, so in very much the same way, I, I can't imagine God being being very proud of many of the ways we've chosen to play with this gift that we've been given. And I think the thing about the gill man is, you know, back to the story that you were saying about the ape, the the gill man doesn't even have that much of a choice. I mean, it, it is always forced upon him. So, again, I think the, the fact that this happens to a creature that we call a monster um is that all of this is forced upon the creature and the creature doesn't have any choice, but to dare I say, riot. Mm. True. And, and when you, (laughs) and when you see the, in the, it's kind of the third movie is ridiculous, right? I mean, it's in some ways when, I mean, it's truly more monstrous to see what we did to, to him, right. Rather than anything that he was pre-existing that. Right. And so, yeah. And as you're talking about, it makes me think of like Cain and Abel, and I'm sure there's already been a lot of, deep theological work about this, but I mean, I mean, Cain is someone who, you know, is a farmer, um, or I'm sorry, uh, Abel is someone who's a farmer and, 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 and Cain is sort of the, the more aggressive hunter. Right. And so you've got mm-hmm. that and which one is sort of favored by God. And that's interesting. Um, and so, um, all right. I want to talk about the Wolfman though. So I want to make sure <laughs> We have we have a few. Uh, we could skip over the mummy since you didn't uh, like you don't like that so much. Although I think you make a really good point in there about the mummy. About a lot of um, it made you one of the digressions you took in that exploration of that text was the way in which Christians have this kind of third grade theology of, of life and death. Right. And, and, and I think yeah. that that's an interesting um, reading about these kind of simplistic um, ideas about what happens after death and, and the way that that kind of 
harms our relationships with each other as we sort of comfort each other in, in these moments when we're dealing with death, right? And so um, I won't make you go into any more detail about The Mummy since it wasn't your favorite, though. Um, although I have to say, I think Michael Farmer thought The Mummy was the best of all the Universal movies. So uh, he's, uh, but uh, I'll, let you, I'll let him hash, hash that one out. Um, but I want to talk about The Wolfman. Uh, and so why don't, you ta- why don't we just start talking about what you wrote about The Wolfman. There's an obvious kind of theological thing about the the capacity of each of us to become to do evil right and to be monstrous right and so and that's one really kind of um fantastic thing about the werewolf as a figure that is it allows us to have that conversation but why don't you kind of go ahead and and expand on that yeah so first i want to say i mean the wolfman is definitely my favorite as well um and and the werewolf is my favorite monster and i think i and i think it, it has to do with the transformation i mean the the idea that that a human becomes something else. Um, I allude a lot to the Incredible Hulk, which I also really love for, for similar reasons. I've, I've always been fascinated about this idea that we become something else. And so I think the subtext of that is, you know, part of that is what, what you've alluded to is that um, it's, it's a metaphor for how we often become something else, whether we lose control or we make the decision. But I think the great thing about the Wolfman is you know there's that there's the great uh poem that um and i hate to break people's bubbles but it's not a gypsy folklore it's just something that the writer kurt siadmak wrote but it is still very brilliant um because it's obviously the whole theme of the movie even a man who's pure in heart says his prayers by night may become a wolf so this idea that um that it's a curse that it's something that's placed upon you, which obviously has huge theological implications, like what kind of God would allow us to be cursed in that way, which again, I mean, the whole reason the Wolfman is as famous as it is, is because of the performance of Lon Chaney with the character of Larry Talbot. So you have this person who seems like he's a pure soul and the tragedy that he embodies, you know, becoming this monster. But I think if you look deeper um, Larry Talbot's not necessarily a, a pure soul. Um, and, and I mean, I, I didn't try to, I, I don't necessarily have the type of theology that says, well, he should be punished because he was dating this woman who was engaged to this other guy. I mean, I think it goes deeper than that. I think it's, it, it reveals that blurry line of, you know, what, what is good and, and, and what is evil. But I do think there are some things that we see that, you know, Larry comes back from sort of being exiled from his homeland um, because he's the he's the younger brother. He doesn't inherit anything. And so he leaves. There's there's obvious disconnect between himself and his father. Um, The townspeople don't really know him. So there's there's all kinds of this uh, disconnection. And then there's that great scene um, after he's become the wolfman. He's he's killed his first victim. And they go to church. And so you see all the townspeople, you know, going in there and Larry just stands at the front of the, or I guess the back of the sanctuary and all the townspeople start turning around from their pews and looking at him. And it's just this great, I mean, there's just so much rich connotation there that they're all judging him. And, you know, even his father who's up at the very front and he just has to leave. Like he's not, he does not feel welcome in God's house. And so it's not only the curse of the wolf man, but it's this curse of, you know, who do these people see me as? 
And, you know, in, in many ways, I think that even connects with the further films, um, e even the horrible ones. I think part of part of Larry's curse is that he can't die. He cannot es escape this. Somebody's always bringing him back. So he's always having to continue this. I think House of Frankenstein, for my money, is probably the best version of just how tragic and how um just the weight of, of his reality. But even in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, there's the scene when they're in the, um, the pub in Viseria and they're trying to find Frankenstein, you know, Dr. Frankenstein and the bartender's daughter is in there, you know, she's lighting candles and, and Larry just kind of looks at her is obviously very attracted to her. Well, then that night he becomes a Wolfman and that's his victim. So, again, I don't know if it's intentional from the filmmakers to make that connection, but I think what does it mean? So is the Wolfman totally separate from Larry or is the Wolfman influenced by Larry or is the curse that um, the Wolfman has brought out but has been in Larry this whole time? So, yeah, I think the great thing about the werewolf is, you know, is this a creature that is put into us because we're bitten by another werewolf or is this um is this a manifestation of releasing something that has been in us the whole time yeah i i like that view of it i feel like in some ways that you can connect it to the invisible man then i think the werewolf kind of makes visible what has been invisible uh for in larry because yeah you see the same thing at the beginning of the wolfman he's peering um through the telescope at gwen um and 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 so he has this sort of like lust for her that predates even knowing her as a person. Right. And so, and, right. and then he ends up, she is his ultimate victim, basically. Um, suppose that, I mean, he gets stopped before he kills her, of course, but, uh, but he's the, she is the one that he's ultimately going to kill. And so I do feel like there is a way in which the curse of being a werewolf is having your own kind of sin made visible to everybody in the world. Right. You can't, you can't like hide your sin anymore. And so I think that that's, um, uh, that's, and you brought, draw into some question, draw some question about is anybody pure in heart then, right? And so, mm -hmm. and that's the, uh, and that's, and you also make an interesting, I, to foreshadow something we'll talk about with Frankenstein's monster. Um, in the movie, they kind of make a distinction between a criminal and a non-criminal brain as if right. you can be one or the other, right? And so, um, and I think that the, the Wolfman really calls that, that, harsh distinction into real question. Like, I, I don't know that anybody is pure in heart. And, and I think that's what's so tragic about the werewolf is that this is just the poor person who we all see it in, but we're all really the werewolf. Sure. Well, and again, I think um, I've, I've never really seen a, a movie. There's probably a story about it. But again, if you think about the werewolf just as an individual, so is this an animal that is forced to live inside a human um, there, there's a great quote from the werewolf of London, and I reference it a lot in that chapter, which someone says a werewolf is neither, uh, uh, an animal or a person, but a creature with the worst tendencies of both. And so, you know, if you're bitten by a werewolf, it, it is the reality that you are being meshed with an, an animal, but also vice, vice versa. So you've got this animal living in you, you know, 28 days out of the year. It's not, it's. It, it's just shut in. So what happens when you finally let an animal go that's been caged for, you know, a, a length of time? Um, the other thing that you brought up about Larry and Gwen is, I mean, he almost forces himself upon her. I mean, we, we see that it's kind of, you know, oh, they're, you know, 
courting each other. But again, he's like, you know, I'll pick you up. And she says, no, I mean, in our context today, would we find that charming? So again, I don't think Larry's totally innocent. Um, you know, I think the, the only reason that we see that Larry is as good a person as he is, is because of Lon Chaney's performance dealing with the tragedy. So, but just because you feel bad about what you've done or who you are, that doesn't necessarily wipe your slate. I totally agree. Um, I, I feel like a little embarrassed to advertise something I wrote on the air, but um, I did write an essay about this um, for Film Inquiry a few months ago. This is the 10th anniversary of the remake of The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro. Um, this year mm-hmm. it came out in um, 2010. And so I think that movie is sadly underrated. Um, and I, I really like that movie. And I think one of the, th- in the, the essay I wrote um, was kind of trying to kind of show how I love The Wolfman too, the original 1942, but it does have these ideological problems, right? And I think a lot of what the remake is doing is trying to turn those, turn that ideology around. And ultimately, I think there's like this question of patriarchy. And so Sir John in the original movie is this sort of upstanding member of our pillar of the community. He's not a member of the community. He controls the community as the Lord of that manor. Right. Um, right. And, you know, looking at it from a psychoanalytic standpoint, I mean, he, the fact that he uses a very phallic uh, silver headed cane to um, return Larry back into the order of the community. Right. That's very um, heavily like patriarchal uh, symbology there. And, um, and in the, the remake of the movie, the cane is something nobody wants anymore, right? I mean, it's like we're all afraid yes. of this. And in fact, it turns out that Sir John is the source of the of the of the werewolfism in that community, right? Mm-hmm. He is not defending it against it, and so it's a very um, heavy critique of these patriarchal structures. Um, and I think that Benicio del Toro does an amazing job of of translating Lawrence Tal- Lawrence in that movie Talbot to uh, to. Uh, to a modern screen. I think he's, he's evoking Lon Chaney in really interesting ways. And I love that movie. <laughs> I think that's, that's just a fantastic movie. Um, and I, I think it was sadly trashed when it first came out, but I think it's really, really great. Um, and yeah. And so, yeah. And, and one of the kind of theological rabbit trails you chase with this is um, the, the way we interact when we're passionate about something, um, even good things like about social justice on, on, on social media and, and whatnot. Right. And so you kind of make a connection to these kind of worst aspects of ourselves being made public to what we see in Larry in his character with the werewolf. You want to say a little bit about that? You talk about Charlottesville and whatnot. Yeah. I, I think the, the first thing I would want to say about that is um, if there is one thing that I would revise in this book, it would be pieces of that because I think in rereading it um, from a white person's perspective. And I, and so I've had, I've had many conversations, you know, after, after the, the, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, um, and then it just kept happening over and over. Um, I, I started having conversations about anger. And uh, so I think I would change some of that because I think, again, I, I was, I think I was referring more to white people's anger, mm. um, than the, the, the anger that, that people experience when things are forced upon them. Um, 
So that's one main thing I would change about that chapter. And I think I do allude to it. I think I'm I think at one point I write about, you know, when we when we advocate for social justice, those who are in power, when we use our power to advocate for social justice, we can oftentimes make it too much about ourselves. And that, that's kind of what I was referring to. Some people call it um, performative advocacy. So the idea that you put up a great performance saying, you know, this is wrong and, you know, we need to bring truth to power and hold people accountable. The danger with that is all of those things are true. But if we're doing it from a place and, and I'm guilty of this as well, when I do that from a place of trying to appear more of an advocate than I really am, then I can allow my anger about something else be funneled into that. Brene Brown um, who's become a lot more famous recently. And I'm very glad um, in her Netflix talk, she says something to the effect of, um, am I allowed to swear? Oh, go ahead. Okay. Well, what I, what I will say is um, she, she says you, you should not work your stuff out on other people. Um, the idea being, and I write about this in the book, social justice should not be a form of therapy. Um, I, I think when you're doing advocacy work, you have to be very aware of who you are and, and who it is that you are fighting for. And, and this is where I get to where speaking on behalf of those in power. So if I use my power to speak for those who do not have the same power as I do, I have to make sure that I'm speaking about their interests and not my own, because it could be very easy for me, especially as a pastor going up to that pulpit and saying, you people are all racist and you need to change. Um, and I could be mad about the fact that they didn't like my sermon last week. And that's why I'm really angry. Um, so I think part of that is, and I've been in, in social justice experiences where, um, the, the people who are angry about what they're proclaiming, well, there's, there's more to it. I mean, some people just like to be angry. Um, and I think it's, it's, we have to be very careful about are we doing this for the very people we say we're fighting for or is there something more inherent for ourselves that we're doing and, it for and yeah and i feel like to kind of take it back to the wolfman um and i don't remember if you say this specifically so i'm, I'm not i if i'm putting words in your mouth i apologize for that but um i i feel like you can almost see like the social media uh, geez, I don't know how to say it. The sphere of social media as this kind of it, the events that we all kind of chime in on on social media. That's sort of the full moon, right? That draw, that draws something yes. out from within us, right? But just like with Larry and Gwen, I suppose that kind of anger tends to lash it's harming the person you love right on some level right mm -hmm. yeah. like you're the victim the victim is the person you're trying to love right and, and i think that's where that kind of like off the rails ad advocacy that is more like you said performative um is um can, can run yourself run into some trouble and and i don't this is one of those things i don't have like a solution for how to do this kind of thing better but um my general suggestion is to um be i don't even have a general suggestion to be honest with you so i'm not even going to go there um but uh but yeah I, I i don't know what the answer is and what's good sort of advocacy and what's bad advocacy except that i can i know it when i see it sort of like pornography <laughs> i suppose yeah. you know i i can't really define it but i know it when i see it and and so yeah and it's something to be very cautious of your motivations and and what what is it that you are truly sort of lashing out at here um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, 
um, I want to talk a little bit about Dracula and Frankenstein before I let you go. Um, and I know we're kind of pushing up on an hour already. This has been so fun for me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, a couple of things that stood out to me about Dracula uh, in that section was particularly towards the end of that chapter, you start talking about the utility of religious symbols to fight this monster. And I was really happy that you brought in Fright Night. It's one of my, one of the movies I watch every year. It's like, I have this little tradition of movies I watch and they'll lead up to Halloween and Fright Night is one of them. And I actually really love yeah. the remake as well. I think the remake with Colin Farrell and Anton Yelchin is great as well. Um, but, um, but the idea that you brought in from Fright Night to kind of talk about Dracula is that the cross only works on the main vampire um, if you really have faith in it. It's just the symbol itself doesn't actually work, right? And so, mm-hmm. and so when Charlie um, does have faith, you kind of raise the question of what his faith is actually in. And I, I just thought that was all very fascinating. And, and so do you want to talk a little bit about um, vampires and Dracula in particular? Yeah, I'll have to say on a personal note, I had the I probably had the most fun writing about Dracula. Um, And I'm not really sure why, but it just like it was just it was very I was just really enthralled with it. And I think, you know, um, for me as a kid, especially when I thought about the embodiment of evil, like Christopher Lee's Dracula just always pops into my head. Nothing against Bela Lugosi, but um for me, Christopher Lee is the Prince of Darkness, but but to the cross, I think one of the one of the great things about Fright Night was it was one of the first, if not the mainstream kind of evolution of the vampire character. So you saw Jerry Dandridge break a lot of rules. He was funny. He was charismatic. Um, th- there was a lot more humanity in him than most other movie vampires. And I think again, what they do with the cross is they sort of bring the the utilitarianism of that into modern times, which is it's not enough to just, you know, put two tan- candlesticks together. Um, there, there has to be more to it than that. And I think that's the thing about the modern vampire is they're much more complicated than, you know, just Bela Lugosi walking around in a cape. Um, and one of my favorite scenes <laughs> is when Roddy McDowell, you know, puts the cross up to Chris Sarandon and he just laughs at it. <laughs> and, um, and the fact that he's watched all of the movies, you know, like you, a vampire watching really bad, you know, hammer horror movies. I just find that really funny. Um, but yeah, I think it brings into the idea of what does it really mean to just put an object in front of a monster and expect it to, to work. And so, again, I think, I mean, obviously we have to remember it's it's mainly for the story, the function of the story. It makes for good storytelling. But again, what are the theological implications, not only of having true faith in the crucifix, but again, why only a crucifix? Um, what if you have true faith in in a medallion or, or a pendant or, um, you know, I reference uh, an X-Men comic book when when they fight Dracula and Kitty Pride, who's Jewish, he wears a Star of David and it repels him. So what does that mean? Um, but but this idea that, you know, if if the vampire does represent more of a theological evil than just a monster, then it would be fair to assume that there has to be a further theological implication of what it is that can repel that evil and not just somebody. Now, the thing going back to Charlie Brewster, I think, what is it that he really has faith in? He's obviously not a churchgoer. Um, so is it just his own strength that, I mean, is it showing that, you know, he, he has strength and 
you know, this has been actor, excuse me, doesn't have any, which, you know, then he's able to redeem himself. And he, you know, Peter Vincent is able to repel Dandridge later on. So what is it that you really have faith in? And um, I, I think the better representation of that is in Salem's Lot with Father Callahan, which, oh, my gosh, it, that is such a powerful scene, because I think it really then goes into the implications of what it is that you really have faith in. Um, there's that great excerpt that King writes about, you know, Father Callahan finally decides to team up with the human vampire hunters and he's all gone ho about it. And, you know, he's found his faith again. He's revitalized into being a priest. But then he goes back home and it's all dark and quiet. And then he really thinks about the implications and the consequences of what happens if I fail. Um, not just that I'll be killed, but, you know, what happens to my soul? That fear then comes back upon him when he actually does face the master vampire Barlow. And at first he actually has the power through the cross and, you know, the cross is glowing and it's repelling him and he feels this immense power, you know, in his arms. And then he starts to think about, well, what is it that I really have faith in? And the more he questions that, the, the more the cross starts to fade. And so, um, yeah, I think those are all brilliant but also terrifying questions when you really sit down and think about it. Like what, what would, if vampires really existed and I had a cross in my hand, would I be able to protect myself? And if I couldn't, what does that mean? Uh, yeah. And that's, that's, I think the a chilling question that's probably useful for a lot of Christians to ask. I mean, are we kind of relying on the symbolism of Christianity more than an actual like sincere faith in it. And, and I think sure. particularly politically um, in our day and age, I mean, I think that we, we over rely on the symbolism of being a Christian. And, and for a lot of people that becomes something they get to redefine in terms of cultural context and political and, and you know, and, and especially this kind of patriotic form of Christianity. Right. Um, and I think that that's a, it's, it's, it's a cross without any reference to the actual cross, if you could say. It's almost like a, a cross stripped of all its actual meaning. Um, it, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, I don't know how to say if it's hollow or, or I don't know what the – but it's sort of any kind of divine connection. It, it's the same shape, but it's a different symbol at that point. And, and, and I think that those, uh, those stories really kind of draw that out. Yeah, well, and I think to go back to what you were saying before about, you know, why, why do I come to church? If I don't come to church to hear about how I need to help my fellow humanity, if I go to escape, what is the symbolism of that? And um, yeah, I think it really delves into what is it that I need to put my faith in? Um, and if it's only something that I can see and then I can hold, then how, how big is it really? And again, I think to speak to COVID right now. So one of the things I continue to hear is, you know, when are you going to open up church again? And our response is typically, well, I mean, from a theological point of view, the church has never been closed. The physical structure might be closed for safety reasons, but how are we still being the church out in our community? And, um, and I've always been a proponent of that. I mean, the church does not exist in a building. Um, the i mean we could lose our church tomorrow there could be an explosion a fire or whatever but we would still be first united methodist church of lakeland florida because it's the people it's not it's not a structure it's not even an institution um and and again i think that's what stephen king is referring to in his book um and i would argue he has much more of a theological grounding in what it is we should truly have faith in that i think 
a lot of established clergy do. Um, you know, there's that great scene when Ben Mears is chopping through the the door and he holds the axe and, you know, he blesses it with holy water and it just glows. And King writes about Mears being possessed by this primal, not even Christian elemental force that gives him the power to break through this evil house. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's like, yeah, that's it right there. And the fact that it's pre-Christian um, re- reminds me anyway, as a pastor, like I do not have any domination or license on God, um, on who God is, on what God can do. And so I, and, and again, I think that's part that's part of the, the trap that we can fall in with symbolism is to say, well, you know, this, this is who God is in this little box that I call faith. And if I don't allow anything else to come into that, and especially if I don't let anything come out of that, then what is it really? Is it faith or is it just my idea that keeps me comfortable? Absolutely. Right. And and I think that th- that's a great moment. And I actually, just on the topic, I interviewed for an episode a couple of years ago now, um, Doug Cowan, who wrote a book about the theological imagination of Stephen King. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a good interview to listen to, but um, I highly recommend his book as well. Um, America's Dark Theologian was the name of the book. It just came to me. Yes. Um, and so, um, yeah. And so, and, and I think one thing I just want to kind of point out about Dracula is though that, um, though you point out that point, that moment in Stephen King, where there's something kind of elemental, um, there is something um, in the universal form of of the vampire, at least, where Dracula is like the most connected to kind of actual like Christian theology in that it is the cross, right? That is, I mean, it's like, that's the symbol that repels him. I mean, you can understand the curse of the werewolf as being something like fundamental, like an old Testament form of God, right? You know, that's a, a curse of, I mean, and honestly, um, uh, Jupiter uh, in Roman religion cursed the King Lycan, right? In a very similar mm-hmm. way. So there's a ways mm-hmm. in which pagan gods can even, uh, employ the curse of the werewolf on someone but um in dracula is uniquely christian and i'm so happy that you brought up dracula 2000 another movie that i think is way more interesting than people give it credit for and for exactly yeah. the reason that you point out the dracula turns out to have been judas iscariot and the source of his curse then is his uh betrayal of jesus uh at the cross right and i i thought that i thought that was a brilliant move by that movie that made that movie so interesting and i was so happy that you talked about it yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I think one of the the key um, pieces of the vampire is that theologically it's a total inversion to the the Christian faith. So you have you have this character who is shunned by light, um, who is shunned by religious symbols, but most of all feeds on the blood of others to to live that's a whole, I mean, that, all of that is just a total, you know, reversal, the redemption of, of Jesus Christ. So yeah, when, when I watched that movie and thought, Oh my God, that's so brilliant. That, that totally fits. And you know, the sunlight and the cross and the silver. And um, yeah, I, I, I thought that was just brilliant. And the idea that the Dracula is more than just this one character. Um, Dracula represents the betrayal and and that's the other that's one of the reasons that I really like the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula is because it goes into the idea that, you know, Vlad the Impaler renounced God and God's like, OK, 
here's what happens when you do that. Um, and so, and again, I think, I think maybe choose Dracula brings a, a bit of humanity and talking about, you know, I'm doing this because I lost my wife and, you know, God rebelled against me and betrayed me, turning me into this. Um, so yeah, I think the, the, the vampire can help us to see what does it mean when we turn away and, and what are the implications? And also what is it, what does it mean when we do not act upon our divine creation, which is if, if we are created to love, if we're created to be loved and to give love, what are the, what are the consequences of when we do the, the opposite? And, and, you know, so I kind of allude on what, what does it mean when we feed off each other? Um, and again, that goes in an exploitation that sometimes we, we use people as tools rather than as, as full fledged individuals. Um, and we use them for our own benefit. Yeah, um, that's great. And and real quick, I, I do want to touch on Frankenstein's monster. Um, I, th- I think that it's uh, the idea of playing God, right? And sort of uh, that's sort of like baked into that story. And and I think it's that's one of the reasons it's so popular and so persistent is that it's any kind of attempt that we have at improving the world through technology of, of any kind, really. I mean, Frankenstein the doctor, Dr. Frankenstein looms as this sort of shadow over that for us for good reason, I think. Right. Um, and, and we've already sort of talked a little bit about the idea of, uh, too easily distinguishing between like a criminal and a law abiding brain. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, a couple things, but I want you to kind of set up your overall thoughts on Frankenstein before I ask you a couple pointing questions. Sure. Well, I intentionally put Frankenstein at the end, um, because I do, I do see him as the, as the ultimate universal monster. Um, number one, because we call him monster. And that's, that's why I put the quote at the very beginning. Um, number one, cause I absolutely love monster squad. Um, but you know, when, when he says, don't call him a monster. Um, I mean, I think that's the whole, that's one of the huge points of, of the story. Um, that's what we call him. Um, we don't even give him a, he doesn't even have a name. I mean, in the book, he's, he's just referenced as the creature. And so the fact that we, that we give him the name Frankenstein, I mean, you know, again, going back to assimilation, we place that upon him. I mean, the, the monster, the creature, I think is the ultimate embodiment of the consequence of us doing whatever we feel like doing, um, and feeling as though we have the power to do so. So in the creation of this monster, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate embodiment of all of the junk that we throw upon other people. We have these grand visions of what the way things should be. And we piece them together into something that we think is beautiful until it comes to life and it has its own ability to live. And then we just throw it away. And that's exactly what happens to this monster. Um, the, the whole thing about the brain, I mean, again, I think for story purposes, that was a good way to show how this creation was, was going to turn evil. Um, and, and again, I mean, I, and I had to reference young Frankenstein somehow, um, you know, with, with abnormal, but, but again, I mean, just the notion that, yeah, evil can be personified through the way your brain is structured. I mean, there's so many scientific and societal um, snafus with that. You could write a whole book about that. But, um, and again, I think it's a way of simplifying, you know, how it is that they perceive 
the character to be. So from the very first moment he walks into that room, you know, here comes Fritz with his torch. If he had not done that, we would have had a whole different movie. But again, it's, it's this ultimate, it's this um, instant fear that we have of someone who is different than us. And that leads to this trail of tragedy and, and horror. And so, yeah, does the monster do that because he has a criminal brain? Well, that might be part of it. But again, there's that incredibly touching moment. I cry every time I see it in Bride of Frankenstein when the guy prays over him. And you cannot not understand what's going on in that moment. Now, is he understanding that with a criminal brain or is there something deeper going on there? Yeah, that is like one of the great, I mean, most people, most like scholars, I suppose, think of Bride of Frankenstein as a better movie than Frankenstein, the original, right? And so they kind of, for me, yeah. work together. I don't know that I can see one without the other. But um, but yeah, that is by far the best scene in any of the movie, in, in all the, maybe in all of the universal movies, right? Um, that that right. moment with the uh, with the the old blind beggar, right? And and I think that that's a, a very powerful illustration, again, of overcoming Frankenstein's invisibility to take it back to the first chapter about the invisible man, right? So he kind of is, again, in, ironically, to a blind person, he's like, um, and maybe it's because he's blind, he's brought back into visibility um, with a com- mm-hmm. in a community of sorts, right? And it's, of course, taken away from him in a, in a tragic way. But I think you're right. At some point, you say that this is sort of the heart of the Universal Monsters, uh, and I think you're totally right in that way. Um, a couple things I want to say. I think that you also talked about Victor, one of Victor's um, problems or Henry, I guess in the movie. Um, but uh, one of his, the source of one of his problems isn't just that he's doing things that are outside the call of man. Right. But, uh, but also he's like applying his own experience that was gained through his privileged life as a rich kid growing up um, to what is proper and good in, in, in another person. Right. And so mm-hmm. part of his um, horror at what he sees in the creature he created is that it diverts from some template that he already had established. Right. And I think that's a really powerful message for all of us to kind of, when we approach situations in which we perceive someone as monstrous or an other of any kind is to sort of try to not apply our own standards of normalcy to them, right? First off, mm-hmm. right? it could be that they are wrong and they are monstrous, right? But but that shouldn't be our first reaction, right? And, and so I think that that's a really, um, that was really great to tease that out of there. Um, and a couple, uh, one of the, th- two, I have two other things I wanted to say. Um, the complementarianism that you talked about with Bride of Frankenstein, I think that's a really interesting kind of movement in church. And I feel like it's a, it's an attempt at recovering some dignity for women in the church, right? Uh, and so it's, I don't want to, I mean, I know that there are people even on our network who sort of identify as complementarian. Um, and there's a, a sub show of the Christian feminist podcast called Complementarian-ish, right? And so, and so I'm not sort of like denigrating that as an idea, but um, there is a way in which this, um, that relationship between the Frankenstein and the bride illustrates certain kind of perhaps troubling underpinnings of that philosophy. I've talked around something, trying not to offend anybody. So it's, it came out really convoluted. I apologize, but maybe you could say it more directly. Yeah. Well, I think um, in a nutshell, uh, complementarianism, I think like any theory applied to humanity um, is fine. 
until humans start to say, well, but I don't want that. Um, and I, you know, I, and I heard about the, I heard this a lot in seminary and in other churches, the idea that, you know, well, keeping men and women separate, they, they have their own gifts and they complement. I mean, it's not to, to oppress anybody. It's actually to lift them up. And I guess in theory, again, that's fine unless you have a man or a woman saying, but that's not who I am. Yeah. And I think especially as you go into people who identify as transgender or, or non-gender, um, well, so, but, so then what about them? How are they complimented? Uh, so again, I think I, Bride of Frankenstein, again, is, is like taking Frankenstein's monster and, and subjugating it even further because now you've created a woman mm-hmm. who, again, did not ask for any of this and is created for someone else like that's her whole purpose for someone else's Um, pleasure so again exactly so to say to the bride of frankenstein here here are your gifts here's what you're good at here's what you're not good at here's what you should do here's what you should not do we're going to place all of that upon you and you you need to follow that again i guess that's good in theory until the bride says well what if i want to do this and that's where the monsterism comes in um, so again, I think it's, it's part of these things like, again, with the, with the monsters, I mean, we're literally piecing together these labels saying, oh, this, this creature is going to be so beautiful. I can see it in my mind, you know, and I've learned how to do it, which yay me. And, and then I give it life and then it's moving differently. It's speaking differently. This is not what I envisioned. And because everything has always been so easy for me. I'm just going to, I don't want to deal with this. Um, and again, I think there's a whole element of that when it comes into the bride that, that even the original monster does not have to deal with because he's created as a male. Yeah. There's a privilege, believe it or not, um, just for the, for the monster and the original creature. Right. Um, and I've also thought it has always been really kind of fascinating to me the way that Elsa Lancaster is both the bride and she plays uh, Mary Shelley at the beginning of that yeah. movie. And I, I think there's some sense that the filmmakers are understanding that Mary Shelley has also been kind of used <laughs> by society. Uh, you know, I, mean, I think in some ways to sit, to kind of double her with the creation that is like horrified about what we have done with her. I think that, that that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, sure. Well, and I think I put it in the book and I'm trying to remember specifically, but um, I think James Whale did not want her to play the monster because he says something effect, you know, how can someone so beautiful and, you know, petite, whatever, be a monster? I mean, there's 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 that labeling like you. You are too pure and innocent to to play this character. Well, what if Elsa's like, but no, I can play this character. So in a way, like I'm complimenting you because you're not able to do this, but that's still subjugation. Exactly. And it's seeing someone from your own perspective and not their own, right? right. Just like Victor, yes. right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that that's great. Um, and lastly, I just want to ask you if you've ever seen um, Penny Dreadful, the, the TV series. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I yes. love that series. It's one of my all-time favorites. I do have to kind of uh, give a disclaimer for those of you who are more con- you know, more concerned about these things than I am, but the, it's very sexually explicit as a series, right? And so um, if that yes. kind of thing bothers you, um, it's not one to watch. But I think that the, what they do with the creature in that series is just so beautiful. And by the end of that last season, um, I was just like, 
crying while I was watching like don't do this to him like I just like I was so invested right. in that character who begins as a total monster right I mean he um, yes. he kind of gains humanity through suffering throughout that series and so I mean it's just like I feel like that to me is the heart I mean the the main character's you know story is the 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 center of that movie but the heart of that movie is what they do with the creature of that series excuse me is what they do with the creature and and i think they just did a beautiful job of um of carrying that what's built into the frankenstein monster story um and carrying that and just teasing out all of the kind of deep emotions that come with a being that person right that 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 being yeah yeah, absolutely. I think my my favorite scene in that whole series is the last time that the creature and Vanessa are together. And she says to him, I think you're the most human person I've ever met. Yeah. Yes, it's 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 heartbreaking. I just I just love it, right? It is. And so yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's such a great series, and it's one. I'm not a binge watcher um, by nature. I have a hard time just sitting around watching one thing for. 12 hours at a time, but, um, but, uh, I had, I did binge watch that show and I, I just absolutely adore it. And so, um, well, Andy Whitaker Smith, thank you so much, uh, for writing the book and doing the, the ministry with it. It's like something right up my alley, something I always kind of would hoped would be in the world. And I'm so happy that it is. It was a great read. And, uh, and I look forward to actually sitting in on the, uh, on the discussions about it via that zoom call. So, um, any, uh, any last thoughts or uh, again, just thank you so much for, for having me here. I'm, I'm so glad you contacted me and that I've discovered uh, Sectarian Review. A- again, I was telling you, um, being able to find some of your previous writings and stuff, I mean, it's just, it opened up a whole new world that I'm glad that I, I know exists out there. And, and again, I think if there are ways that we can help others who find passion in these things and, and see them just beyond the surface, um, I think that's a great way to create community because I think any good story is going to be able to help us to see the world differently. Um, so, you know, for those who are listening out there, just realize you do have a community out there and, and you're not crazy. And um, hopefully this, this can be helpful. Yes, you're, you're visible, right? Uh, uh, to go to extend our, our theme here. So thank you again, Andy Smith, Andy Whitaker Smith, excuse me. Um, um, thanks for joining us. And if you have any questions, those of you who are listening, feel free to contact me. Um, as always, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Yeah.